Welcome once again to the SEM podcast. Jack Bryce and Zach Hewlett is your host here, and today we are privileged to hear from the legend himself, Jonathan DePold. <laughs> Jonathan, I don't know about legend, not with Jack's beard hanging around here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I covet, I covet that beard, Jack. By the way, <laughs> oh man, Jack's had quite the evolution of a beard since we started this podcast. It's been fun oh, really? to watch. It looks good right now. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Jonathan, tell us what part of the world you're, we're, uh, we're talking to you from today. Uh, I'm in Goldsboro, North Carolina, just about an hour and a half southeast of Raleigh towards the coast. Nice. How long have you guys been there? Uh, two years. Not too long. Okay. We This is our second time here, though, so we were, we were here before. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll get into the thick of that. <laughs> yeah, <so>. Sure. <laughs> What, you said you listened to the podcast. Let's you know dive right into it. Start us off, you know, in anticipation of getting your mission call, and kind of give us the backstory there. Okay, yeah. So my parents were both converts to the church. I grew up in Washington State, so I was kind of the first one in the family to seriously think about going on a mission. I think it was always something that was expected that I would do. Always something I thought I would do growing up in young doing all the standard LDS activities that you do growing up and the influence you have in seminary and later institute. And then I, uh, after graduating high school, I went to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is, you guys are both in Colorado, right? Where, where yeah. are you guys? I'm in Highlands Ranch. So Highlands it, Ranch. Right? I'm, I'm just about a little, little less than an hour if I, from my front door to the academy. I've been to a couple athletic events down there so oh cool nice yeah it's, so it's such a beautiful campus it's incredible the just driving by on the interstate and looking up at it as it's nestled up in the mountains there it's just a really beautiful uh spot so i love colorado i could live there forever you have to help me find a house someday but hey so, I, i'm waiting you, for you you call me <laughs> all right so i went to uh i went to the air force academy it's it'd been a lifelong dream of mine um, since I was five years old to fly fighter jets in the military. So I just, to this day, I still haven't grown up. Um, but I, so I went to the Air Force Academy and at the academy, it's a little unique because there's a, there's a three week window, basically every June that you have to leave on a mission in order to serve for a full two years and then come back. So your first two years at the academy are free, but then once you start your junior year, that's it. You're you're in the Air Force, basically, at that point. So hmm. you have to leave either after your first year or after your, your second year. So my first year there, I, everything was you know going really well. I was really enjoying the Air Force um, deal, you know, being a cadet, wearing a uniform, running around and playing military, and then all the, all the academic classes. And I was honestly starting to enjoy it so much, I kind of stopped thinking about going on a mission and that, it, you know, I'd just stay there and start my air force career and, you know, start get flying and all of that. Um, and then I kind of sequence events, um, before starting sophomore year, which I won't go into all the details, but I just knew that I needed to serve a mission. I knew when, when I needed to leave, which was after my sophomore year, also when I was going to be turning 19. So the, the timing of all of that made sense. And so in my sophomore year over Christmas time, so this would be, um, January 2005, basically, and I'm I'm preparing to leave in June of 2005. 
there was a cadet, an exchange cadet from Honduras who came back with an active case of tuberculosis. And so I tested positive for tuberculosis. I think I shared one of the PE classes with him. It was like unarmed combat. You know, we're throwing each other around on mats and wrestling and stuff. So I picked that one up pretty quick. And it was oh, it was yeah. nine months of treatment and um, chest x-rays periodically to, you know, make sure that you were healthy and everything was okay. So I didn't, not, nothing, I didn't suffer any negative health reactions, but it was just a precaution and, and monitoring. So I was like, you know, I told my bishop who told the stake president and the, the academy church leadership worked very closely with Salt Lake and the military representatives at Salt Lake t- to funnel us as needed for that timing that I told you about. So we could leave in June, come back in June and, and restart at the academy and not miss coming back um, as well as serving those those full two years. So they were like, okay, let's, you know, we'll communicate with Salt Lake and we'll see what's going on. One of the interesting things about the cadets at the Air Force Academy is they all go foreign and learn languages and they go to all kinds of exotic lands. And there's there's the one or two in the entire group there that, you know, served in Arizona or Salt Lake. And we're like, man, you guys must have been really bad in the pre- <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was like, it's very, very prideful, but very much the culture at the academy that cadets, you know, go foreign and they learn languages. And I certainly wanted that very, very badly. I wanted to go foreign and learn a language. So Salt Lake's response was, okay, we're going to let him go in June. He can, he can go on time instead of waiting a couple months and serving a shorter mission when he'd need to leave in like September or October when this treatment is complete. However, we're going to send him to like a dry climate close by where we can kind of keep an eye on him, you know, so Arizona, Utah, you can see where this is going. Right. So, so that was, like, I was, I was happy. Cause I was like, I, you know, I want to serve a mission, but I was also my pride of which I have a lot, uh, really struggled with that. Cause I didn't want to go to Arizona or Utah and be that one guy that didn't go to Taiwan or South Korea, or Ukraine, and all these other places. Um, everyone else was getting called to at the time. So I, I, I legitimately struggled with that and I really needed to humble myself um, and and make sure that I was going for the, the right reasons. So I my mission call arrived and I, I got it out of my little post office box there at the academy. I was just so excited. You know, you, you, you read your full name on the envelope. You guys remember this, that big white envelope. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Forrest DePold. And it's it's like, here, you know, here we go. So. I changed out of my uniform and I put on some uh, gym clothes and I ran up into the mountains behind the academy there. So I was up in the mountains and I was just looking out over the academy in Colorado Springs. Just, you know, it's an incredible view yeah. up there. And and I basically told God, I said, I, I it took months, but I think I, I think in that moment and just that moment, I reached the point where I legitimately didn't care. All I needed to know was that it was right, that I was going to the right place. And as long as I knew, as long as God was willing to tell me it was the right place, then I was going to be happy and excited no matter what. So, you know, you rip it open, you skip right through and you read Scotland and, you know, the joy and the and the excitement is just immediate, of course. And, you know, having listened to this podcast a little bit, especially some of the, uh, you know, the English missionaries who who read that and have a different reaction, I can only, I I just have so much admiration 
for them the fact that they that they felt the way that they did and they they manned up and they showed up and they did their job that's i just have so much respect for that um so anyway for me you know reading that i was going to to uh, scotland was was an incredible experience i'd actually been there before when i was little um, my father passed away when I was young, and my my mom moved my sister and I. I was ten years old, and we moved to England to restart our lives, and we spent a year there. Wow! the The summer before I started school, when I was ten, we went up to Scotland, and we just toured around, and we went to Edinburgh and Glasgow. But the only part I remembered was actually going to Loch Ness, and on the the shores of Loch Ness, I found a purple a beautiful purple stone in the shape of a heart and i gave that to my mom and she always kept it and so when i called her and told her that i was going to scotland that heart-shaped stone was sitting next to her and it was just this wonderful moment for my family to think about you know being able to go and serve in scotland so that's a really you cool. know i was just so i was just so excited to go there and i had no idea there was an mtc in england uh so you know, all my nerd friends went to Provo and I got to go to England and, <laughs> and away we went. So right at the end of June, right on time, like I needed to. So I resigned, I resigned my appointment uh, from the Air Force Academy and, and I was on my way. So, so that was, you that said was, June of 05? Yeah, June 2005. That's right. Okay. All right. Well, before we get to the mission, let's go to June of 07 and talk to us about what life has been like since then to now sounds good so june so i I reapplied to get back into the air force academy um at the end of my mission uh it's like almost a year-long process i had to go get a nomination from a u.s congressman or senator again wow um i just it's just kind of a pains but thankfully there was enough precedent with the academy that you know, they were used to the Mormon guys leaving and coming back. So it was fairly seamless to get an appointment back. So I, I came home in June. I was home for nine days and then right back uh, to the Air Force Academy to start my junior year. So two more years uh, at the Air Force Academy and then graduated in, in May 2009 um, with a Bachelor of Science in Political Science. And I commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force and orders to go to pilot training in Enid, Oklahoma. Vance Air Force Base, which is, it's the Dust Bowl of America. It's right in the Panhandle. <laughs> There's nothing. There is nothing there but a whole lot of Air Force trainers flying around. Um, Interesting. So I, so I, uh, I graduated from pilot training in in 2012, and I was just very very fortunate uh, to be selected to go uh, to fighters and. I've flown the twin engine, twin tail, bomb dropping, missile shooting, supersonic F-15E Strike Eagle um, for the past many, many years, uh, and that's taken me all over, all over the world. Um, spent time coast to coast here in the states, um, and then uh, we were in North Carolina. Um, but most recently, we were in North Carolina, and then we went to England actually. And we lived in England for four years and then back here uh, to North Carolina. And then I got out of, I left active duty almost a year ago after 12 years um, on active duty, I left and went into the reserves 
and actually do the exact same job just as a reservist, a part-time reservist is the way to think about it. So five or six days a month, I put on an Air Force uniform and go fly the Strike Eagle. Um, and I, I teach in our schoolhouse here. So our, uh, in North Carolina, we have the F-15 schoolhouse for all the new pilots coming through. So I'm an instructor for that, and I teach the, the new pilots. Um, and then my my full-time civilian job is with a company called Draken, and, and we're basically a, a large <laughs> mercenary air force. We have a bunch of, we have a privately owned um, fighter fleet, and we're contracted by the Department of Defense to fight the military. So I train in Russian and Chinese tactics, and then I go and I fight uh, wow. the American capitalist pigs. Um, <laughs> so that's what I do. Wow. So I'm, I'm like, I'm the bad guy, you know, three or four days a week. And then I'm the good guy one or two days a week. And it's really fun because I, I fight the same students that I train, uh, which is a blast. So I'll, I'll be training the students one day and then, you know, I'll finish the debrief and then I'll just stop, start talking crap to them. You know how I'm going to kill them tomorrow <laughs> and take them out. So, uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing, uh, setup. I, I'm just incredibly, incredibly fortunate uh, to do that. It's, it's, um, the, you know, the odds of you becoming a, a fighter pilot are, are very, very low. And just luck and timing kind of worked out for me and, and let me do that. So we moved to England in 2016 and we, America has two Air Force bases just north of London. So there's Lake Heath and Melbourne Hall. One's a fighter base and then one's a, one's a tanker base. So, we were really excited to get orders to England and we moved there when my son was nine months old, uh, my oldest, and it was just an, an incredible experience uh, being over there and, and living as a citizen there. You know, you'd show up with your, your passport and your orders and you'd arrive at the, you'd fly into Heathrow after being out of the country doing whatever. And as you're going through customs, in their British accent, you know, they'd welcome you home. And that was just a, it's just a really cool um, experience for us. We lived in a little Victorian home um, in a little town called Bury St. Edmunds, which is an old medieval town. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful place. And, and flying there was an incredible experience. And, uh, and it was, it was really, really busy. Like, you know, we're there, for strategic reasons, obviously, to be able to posture quickly to the Middle East or or to counter Russian aggression, if that were the case. And so when we moved there, um, ISIS had just started flaring up in Iraq and Syria. And so we, Trump was in office at the time. So the policy was we weren't going to put boots on the ground and go through a whole ground war, but we were just going to basically bomb them into oblivion, um, which is what occurred. And then once that was all wrapped up, uh, we focused to peer competition with the great world powers and so our, in england our focus was russia and so i i trained up on nuclear weapons uh, my fighter jet's the only one in the american military that's uh, certified to carry nukes um, and so we picked up that mission and uh, started you know pounding our chest uh, against russia and that was that was exciting um, so it was just really neat to kind of see the strategic foreign policy of the United States and then to be a part of it and to be our, our nation's sword and shield uh, over there. And it was, it was really, really, really busy. Um, we, 
we had a great time and we traveled and got to do a lot of tourism stuff, but you know, it was just so busy that uh, I'd go to bed Sunday night and I wouldn't see my son until Saturday morning, even living in the same house. And so we got, we got, uh, we got pretty tired um, by the end of that. And we moved back. I was selected to go through the instructor course here in North Carolina and to teach uh, in F15. And so we moved back here in 2020 and we've been here ever since, but I, I got to fly actually over Scotland a couple of times and to kind of bring it full circle. One of the, I, I showed up to a, a briefing. I hadn't done any of the mission planning for it because I had been doing something else. But so the other guys had, had done a, a mission planning session and I showed up and there were four jets going and I, I sat down and I started looking at the products and I started the brief and I'm looking through the maps and we're doing low level training, low altitude training. We're flying, you know, a couple hundred feet off the ground, zipping through the mountains um, which is what my jet was designed for. And I look at the more closely at the map. I'm like, we're going to fly right down Loch Ness. <laughs> and sure enough, we took off and we flew up the East coast of England, right over Edinburgh. And it was one of those, it was one of the five days in the year that was just clear skies over Scotland. And, uh, we flew over Edinburgh and I, I, you have a targeting pod on the airplane. It's capable of TV and IR modes, shoots lasers, all kinds of cool stuff. And so I threw it down into Edinburgh and I'm just, you know, looking at the castle and kind of zooming around the city a little bit as we flew over. And then as we got up north towards Inverness, where we were going to let down from high altitude to the low altitude structure, uh, we'd start talking to the Scottish controllers and nobody can understand them <laughs> except me. <laughs> so I started, so I took over the radios there and, uh, uh, talking to the controllers, um, and then we flew. We flew. We flew right down Loch Ness, just a couple hundred feet off the water, five hundred miles an hour. And and you guys have been to Loch Ness before. Right? You know the you know the lock is really long and mm -hmm. narrow, and there's those big hills on either side. Right. And, and so we picked it up on the north end there, right over, right by Inverness, by the airport, and then we just go screaming down there. And it was it was honestly a surreal moment for me um and just looking down and uh and you know your castle that's right there um and just cranking and baking and you know people are looking up at you as they're down on the down on the lake and it was a it was a really surreal moment uh, to be able to do that and then you know zip down the mountains up there in the highlands for a little bit and then back it just it was an extraordinary experience i just so lucky to have been able to to do that. And, you know, looking to, I guess this is jumping ahead a little bit, but about a year, I never served in Inverness. I really, really wanted to serve in Inverness because of this memory I had as a child there. Mm -hmm. And so showing up in Scotland, I was like, oh, I want to go to Inverness so bad. But my entire mission, I spent all of one day in Inverness um, <laughs> with Garrett Smith, actually. And I'd been in the mission, I'd been on the mission for I think like, I don't know, 10 or 11 months by this point. And so I was on, ex we were on exchanges. And so I was on exchanges with Garrett Smith, who was serving. Do you guys remember Garrett or did you know him? Yep, just I remember this, Garrett. He's from Idaho, just this great, great man. And just had the most wonderful testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so he, we showed up in the morning and he had planned this great day for us. And I said, can we pack a lunch? And at lunchtime let's go to the lake and i just you know i just want to see the lake and you know reconnect with my childhood and kind of bring it full circle and 
it was just just as a special experience and and you know the mission has highs and lows right so you you know you're peaking and you're going into valleys and and you're doing well and sometimes you're not doing so well and and this was one of those times where i was uh i was really stressed um the Vreenses were about to leave and the, the Fredericks were about to show up. And I was just kind of thinking about that a lot. I was really stressed with um, thinking about that transition. I was serving in the office at the time, so I was going to help out with that. And um, typical Scotland day, it was just pouring rain and the clouds were on the streets, <laughs> you know. And so we're driving out to Loch Ness with our lunches, you know, for the quick hour that we're going to spend out there. I'm like, well, we're going to see a lot of clouds and fog, you know, and that'll be about it. And as we're driving out along the road, I don't know if you guys have driven the road along. It's on the west side of the lock, right? Yep. On the west side of the lock out of Inverness, you, you drive along there and it climbs a little bit. And and Inverness, like the Riverness turns into Loch Ness, right? And so that yep. water starts and it starts getting wider and wider and wider. And so we're driving along there and we're just going to, I don't know. We're just going to go to a lookout point or something. And as we're driving, a seam in the clouds opens up and it starts splitting. And by the time we reached this little lookout point, it was beautiful sunny skies over the lock. And the, the clouds were just on the outside of the hills on each side. Wow. And they had this beautiful view of Loch Ness. And I had a very, I had a spiritual experience in which I felt the love of God and his comfort. And it was just a wonderful moment. And then, and then we turned around and we drive back and I know it sounds crazy, but as we no kidding hit the tip of the lock, driving back into Inverness, the first drop of rain hits the windshield. And it's, so I just had these experiences on uh, Loch Ness. And so I would just remember in my fighter jet flying down and looking down on that spot and just thinking how good God has been to me in, in my life um, and how special Scotland has been as a child, as a fighter pilot, and then certainly as a missionary. So it's amazing. It's really cool. <laughs> I have I have two questions. So you have how many kids now? I have two sons. Two sons. They are okay. six and two. And then uh, my wife and I have been married <clears throat> about 10 and a half years. Okay. So she's the, she's the youngest, she's the younger sister of my best friend from the Air Force Academy. So, well, he was my best friend. Then we weren't friends for a little while, but now we're, now we're a family. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, the question that I was going to pose about your sons is, did they develop English accents because they grew up around it? in the initial stages of learning how to speak. Yeah. My actually it's, it's kind of strange, even though we've been home almost two years, my six year old still has an accent. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So he's like, people are always want to talk to him because they want to hear, you know, him speak. And then my two year old who was born in England while we were there, you know, he's developing this Southern North Carolina accent. So it's, it's all backwards, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> but he has dual citizenship right so he can go back and all that or no he will when he's 18 because he okay. was born on an american base and and just the way the rules are um but when he's 18 years old actually he can apply for uh british citizenship so we we intend on taking full advantage of that <laughs> when he's 18 <laughs> that's cool <clears throat> all right my second question 
is Top Gun real based upon your experience? <laughs> you know, um, I, had to, I had to ask because that's yeah, the that's first thing that went through my head is, you know, watch Top the first Gun, Top yeah. Gun, watch the new Top Gun. Come on, give yeah. us give your perspective of it. The, the I'll say the first Top Gun is a cartoon. <laughs> it's just a <laughs> it's just a it's just a Hollywood cartoon. Um the second Top Gun, however, is I think a beautiful movie. It's the they actually, you know, did real flying scenes in real jet. Not that there wasn't flying scenes in the in the first one, but it was very it was very cartoonish. The second one really captured some of the beauty of flying a fighter jet and and having the cameras in the cockpit with their clear visors so you can see the g-forces you know crushing their faces and, um and just the the movement of the airplanes um there's still a lot of hollywood <laughs> still plenty of hollywood in it but there's just some really beautiful uh flying scenes and the it's kind of funny the the weapon they drop it's the, uh, actually a really really cool weapon it's a gbu 24 paveway three it's a 2000 pound bomb body and then on the tail kit it's got these 12 foot wings basically these fins that pop out and then on the front's a seeker and it's it's great for exactly what they used it for like a bunker buster penetration weapon um in a gps denied environment so there was some cool like tactical relevancy to that although i will say they never would have called those navy clowns to go in and fly that mission <laughs> that was that it's actually funny like my my jet was actually designed to fly that exact mission a low altitude self-escort like it was designed to carry a nuclear weapon deep into russian airspace and deliver a tactical nuclear weapon alone and then escort yourself out so the capstone flights we do with our students will you know they'll fight an air-to-air picture, they'll fight some bad guys in the air, they'll fight bad guys on the ground as they drop bombs, and then they have to fight bad guys again on the way out, they have to fight their way home. That is exactly what my jet was designed to do. And we have a we have a train following, gosh, you shouldn't have asked that question. I'm gonna talk about jets forever, but we we have this, we have this amazing, we have this really cool problem jet that has train following radar. It basically maps the ground. And you can link the flight control system of the airplane to that. And so you can go at night, 100 feet off the ground, and the jet will fly itself over the earth. Oh my! Hundreds word. of miles in an hour. It's incredible, and wow. it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you're you're sitting in the jet, and you're just like, you know, your hands off, basically. You just let the jet fly itself. And I remember the first time doing this, and I got a little warning in the HUD that basically said, if you don't turn left. I was like, oh, I wonder what's over to the left. And so I, I'm wearing night vision goggles. And I look over to the left and there's just a mountain going up as high as the sky, as far as I'm concerned. I had no idea it was there. And my jet is just flying itself. So that's anyway. incredible. Yeah, oh Top Gun was supposed to be flown by my airplane, but whatever. <laughs> anyway. So, it's so a, you it's you are the Maverick. Let's just make that clear. That <laughs> we're we're talking to the Maverick. Tell, yeah. tell the real deal. Tell all your friends. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're in the yes. presence of a of a of a celebrity. <laughs> no, it's uh I it's cool to see a movie like that come out. I took my six year old to go watch it. Um and just you know, to be able to share to, to share that with, with other people is just so it's it's so fun. And yeah. you know, there's there's so much beauty in flying uh as well. 
there was there was this one flight I did. We were taken off out of Georgia here in the south and we we're flying to England. So a jet had just gone through maintenance and we we're flying it from Georgia to England. We took off at two o'clock in the morning. We have tankers that basically drag us across. We're air refueling along the way. <clears throat> and we get over, we basically fly up the East Coast, up Canada, over Greenland, Iceland, down Scotland, and then down into England is the right, so our flight path. And as we're crossing the ocean, the sun starts coming up. And so, you know, in a fighter jet, it's designed to have amazing visibility, right? So you're under this canopy that comes down to your hips and it bows in. So when you look down your hip, you're looking straight down on the earth. And when you're looking out front, they design the nose to drop off. So in front of you, there's no, there's nothing in front of you but sky. So it's just this amazing view. So the sun is coming up. And so you have all the colors of that, the, the orange and the red and the pinks, and then that's turning into the pale blue that goes into a dark blue that goes into these purples that are unlike anything I've ever seen. And then directly above you are the stars. So you have the sun and the stars in one panoramic view. And it's just, it is so beautiful. And, or you fly high enough that you start to see the curvature of the earth. So I'm not, I don't subscribe to the flat earth theory personally. <laughs> I don't know if you do, we could talk about it, but you know, so, <laughs> but you know, you fly that high and you see the curvature of the earth and it's just, you know, the wonders of God's creation and, and those views are just uh, incredible. So I don't know about you, Zach, but I'm regretting every career decision I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and if you guys are ever in North Carolina, I'm happy to, to take you on a tour. Um, don't know if uh, we can oh, sneak man. a flight in, but can definitely get up close oh at the jet. So That's awesome. I'm, I'm going to check flights right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, come on out. You guys <laughs> are always amazing. welcome. You guys are always welcome. I love it. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Good. I'm 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 so fired up. We haven't even talked about the mission yet. All right, so let's 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 go <laughs> let's go back to June 2005. Start at the MTC if you'd like, or we can go straight to the mission. But uh, floor is yours, man. Yeah. The, so the MTC was great. Um, I think this is one of the ways where the military really prepared me well. I'd already been living away for away from home for two years been really outside my comfort zone going through boot camp and all the military training. So showing up to the MTC in this like spiritual boot camp was just summer camp, fun, like hanging out with the the boys and girls, like studying the scriptures. It was just a really cool experience. Um, Lyle Borders was my companion initially for about a week. And then the mission president put me with a, a missionary that was going to Leeds that was really struggling um, and really, really homesick. So he thought maybe I could, I could help him out a little bit. Um, and that was the only time I served with Lyle. Uh, just a great, great guy, a really funny sense of humor and, um, just so sincere, uh, and dedicated. Uh, so anyway, the, the MTC was great. Um, uh, nothing, I don't really have any crazy stories, uh, from that. Um, and then the train ride, Train ride up to Edinburgh was what I've heard kind of other people say so far. Just, just so exciting, you know, to go up there and and to arrive in Edinburgh. And I I didn't remember the city from when I was a kid. So you know, the first day this I guess would have been mid July after three ish weeks in the MTC. 
uh, it was just a beautiful sunny day. And I just remember being amazed by the city and how beautiful it was. And, and that really old architecture that was fused with like modern buildings. Do you remember this? It's so, it's so straight. It's like this, these glass facades of these banks and businesses that go right into an 18th century church or building or, or something. Yeah. It's just this incredible fusion of, of architecture. It's just the most gorgeous city. Um, I, it's good. I like it so much because I wound up living there for a year of <laughs> my mission. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I, I just remember being excited to be there and, uh, the APs took us on the tour where they just lied right through their teeth. <laughs> just most ridiculous stories. <laughs> hey, this one, this building inspired the White House, and this building is where Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. And, and you know, eventually you figure it out. You're like, you guys are so full of it. What? Like, how how lame do you have to be to like take a bunch of young greenies, you know, on a tour like that? And then I did the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Every single time I did the exact same. I did it to the Fredericks as well when they first showed up. I'm a little embarrassed about that now. I guess I can talk more about that later. But yeah, I did the exact same thing. Doug, Doug Poland trained me well on, on that tour uh, later on. So, but it was just it was just fun to be there. And um, you know, I remember we stayed in that bed and breakfast. Did you guys stay in that? I think most people. I know sometimes we didn't just because there were a lot of missionaries, and so we just put them in the mission home. But you know, we stayed in that bed and breakfast for like. This is great. <laughs> How easy is a mission, right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, in the in the upstairs of that, on the, on the addition of the mission home, on that upstairs, there's that big room where you know we would do zone leader councils there and different different meetings. Right. And and I remember them bringing out. So you're there with all your, the other guys from your MTC group. Um, and then your the trainers are in there, and then they bring out this huge map of Scotland, and one by I don't know if this was the same for you guys, but you know the trainer would stand up and say, "All right, elder so and so, come on up here. This is where we're serving." And then with, you know they'd point at the map, and I was like, oh, "I want to go to Inverness so bad," um, and I went to Falkirk, <laughs> which is not Inverness, <laughs> not quite, <laughs> not quite, not quite Inverness. Um, so my first. I had to wait for my companion for an extra day. He was coming down from Shetlands and it was Kevin Anderson, uh, who was in his, the last three months of his mission is 27 years old and just the greatest, greatest trainer anybody could ask for. It's just so amazing. Um, and so, so he picked me up from the mission home and they, they gave us a car and we drove out to Falkirk, which isn't too far from Edinburgh. It's in the Edinburgh zone. Um, and we, we were whitewashing in, obviously, and um, we moved into the flat, and, and and away we went. And the Falkirk branch was very different than anything. I'd never lived in a branch before, and it operated very, very differently than anything I had ever experienced. So, Jack, you were in Falkirk, right? Did I you whitewashed in when I whitewashed out. So. Oh, really? Did I replace you? Oh, okay. Yeah, you replaced me. Oh, great. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. How dare you? <laughs> um, so we, you know, the branch, there was just some wonderful families, as you know, and some wonderful people, but was it loud when you were there? Oh, yeah. Just chaos. Like, I think there were 
about 12 adults in the branch and 50 children just screaming, just screaming the whole time. And uh, I always, I was always like, what, you know, when we bring our friends to church, what are they going to think in this ward? Because it yeah, is so yeah. loud. It is, it is so, you couldn't hear anything. Yeah. I remember writing to President Brains uh, and saying, I don't know. I don't know how we're supposed to bring people to church here because it is so loud and it is just, it what didn't really even feel much like a church. I mean, they did sacrament and, and there were talks, but there was just so much chaos going on from these, from all the kids that it was mostly just adults trying to babysit children, you know, during sacrament meeting before everybody split up. So there wasn't really much of a meeting going on. And I remember, <laughs> Uh, you laugh about it now, but it was kind of stressful at the time because you're like, I don't know how how I'm going to bring investigators here, despite how wonderful so many of those families are and and so many of those, um, so many of those different people, but, uh, and but Kevin Anderson was so good. He he was very much he was very creative. Like he was always thinking outside of the box and how to how to develop relationships with members, how to reach out to less actives and so we were always he was always thinking of these different things whether they were service projects or we're going to deliver some cookies somewhere or we're going to do something for somebody he was just so creative and clever with that and which would really serve me well later as we uh, picked up member missionary work um a year a year later um but uh he yeah and and kevin's sense of humor was just, it's just one of a kind you know yeah i'm sure you both knew him uh pretty well um he's just a one-of-a-kind guy <laughs> i heard a lot about him but i did not get an opportunity to meet kevin in the mission maybe we were in the same room once but i seem to always go the opposite direction of where he was gotcha so. he he also trained uh, brandon fish which That's I was right. so I was so proud of that because you remember we had our families out there, right? The dawn. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so this was kind of a big deal, like your family pedigree. So I had, you know, I had Kevin and then and the fact that Brandon Fish was my mission brother brought me so much credibility, I thought, because he was <laughs> so cool and so awesome. And everybody loved him, you know, like Elder Fish was legendary. So I'd always be like, oh yeah, that's my, that's my mission brother. As, as if like that would rub off on me, you know, um, uh, fish is so great. And I got to spend, a, I never served with him. But I got to spend a little bit of time with him later um, before he went home. But I, I think he was about a year older than me on the mission. So anyway, Kevin, Kevin was just the, the greatest. He's been a surfer guy in California. Um, and he, he had that very laid back surfer vibe and, you know, he'd lived in a van on a beach for, for months or years. I don't know at a time. And, uh, that was his life and that's what he did. And, and, and he still had some of that, you know, in his heart, which was good, a good thing. Um, and, and Falker, one of the interesting things is about Falkirk as well is I, you probably knew this too, Jack, but there actually used to be two wards there. There was the bonus ward, which was another city kind of to the Northeast, right on the, um, Firth there. And hmm. on the first of fourth and, and there had been a ward and then there had been another ward in, in Falkirk. And so when you looked at the membership record at Falkirk, it was thousands of people, thousands of people on the records for Falkirk branch. And so we decided, you know, let's just go out and, 
and try to meet some of these less actives. And we wound up meeting a whole bunch of different families that had been in this bonus ward. Um, and sorry, I keep saying bonus. I think I mean Grangemouth. I think I'm mixed up my words. Does, does Grangemouth sound better? Yeah. Yeah. Bonus. I think it's up in Dundee. Um, it's not. You're right. I'm looking at it now. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. Grangemouth. Where's Boness? Boness is on the it's on the first, just north of Lynn Lithgow. Oh, so I'm not crazy. You're not. Nope. Okay, so I think it'd been the Boness ward, but I think a lot of the members had worked at Grangemouth where there was a huge refinery. Anyway, we it wound up piecing together this incredibly epic but sad tale of of two wards disintegrating through interpersonal drama and all that was left standing were the sticks of this Falkirk branch. And that was really disheartening. Um, but you know, the people that were there, I just, just still love so much to this day The the McFeast on Sundays is of course so well legendary, legendary, so legendary that the Edinburgh zone leaders would always try to do exchanges with us on Sunday. So one of them could go to the and we're like, get the heck out of here. He's like, no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Was Pattenden the one trying to do that? It was uh it was Connor Muirhead and Paul Christensen were the, the two Edinburgh zone leaders at the time. <laughs> and I love both of them so much. Um uh just have nothing but love and respect for those guys. But anyway, they would but they would try to get in on the McFeast on Sundays. Can't blame them. Can't blame them. Can't blame them. I might or might not have done the same thing a few months later. <laughs> I became the when I went to Edinburgh. Anyway, so um, Kevin Anderson, we were together for three months, and then uh, he went home. Uh, he was just such a good example to me of how to finish a mission strong and and with all of your heart. Um, and then my next companion was Joseph Bautista. And he was in his last three months of his mission, and he was so trunky and disobedient and always goofing around and never wanted to do missionary work. <laughs> That's obviously all a complete lie. Um, he was just so incredible. And, uh, you know, and, and as a young missionary, like, I didn't know these guys, right? I didn't know their you know, where they had been and what they had done and how well-respected they were. And Joseph was just, you know, so well-respected. And, and it was so obvious. You'd go to a, a zone conference with him and every missionary is coming off the wall to give him the hug and catch up with him and hang out with him. He was just, he was so wonderful. And um, we uh, was able to spend the three months with him before he went home. and. One of the things I always teased him about was because once once we went into that last transfer and and we knew that I was going to be his last companion, I would give him a really hard time and be like, "I'm your favorite companion you've had, right?" And I just keep bugging him every day, every couple minutes, like, "I'm your favorite, right?" Like of all the because he'd served with incredible missionaries. I think he'd been a zone leader for like a year and just served with great companions all the way along and. Um, Anyway, so on the on the record, officially, uh, on the state, I'm declaring that I was his favorite companion. <laughs> Nobody here to contest it. Nobody can contest it. Nobody. Yeah, right. was, I was his favorite. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things about Joseph, uh, 
was he taught me something about charity that I've never forgotten. And he wrote it to me in a little note. And Joseph, as you know, is somebody that embodies the virtue of charity. And he said, Elder DePaul, do you want to know what charity is? Charity is treating everybody exactly alike, no matter who they are and no matter what title they hold, whether it's a mission president, the prophet, a janitor, somebody you meet on the street, you treat everybody exactly the same. And that's charity. And that was something that um, that just always really, always really st- stuck with me. And that is how he was. It didn't matter who you were. He treated you with just this big, you know, the big heart that he had and his great sense of humor. And, you know, is so musically talented as, as well. Um, I was actually able to visit him after the mission over in Sweden uh, and catch up with him over there, which was a lot of fun. That was 10 years ago. It was a long time or more. I think it was back in like 2009. Just adds to your favorite status. Favorite status. Who else? Joseph, if you're listening, who else has visited you in Sweden? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, just um, uh, he was just so he was so great. and then I, I left Falkirk. Uh, so I've been there for six months now. And uh, I left Falkirk. President Vreen's called me Dodgy DePold. I don't know if you ever heard that description. Yeah, but so he, he, he called me on the phone. He's like, all right. He's like, all right, DePold, I know you're super dodgy. So I'm, I kept you close. Now I'm bringing you closer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he brought me into Edinburgh uh, to serve with Paul Christensen. So I... Uh, so Connor Muirhead was going home, who I just had so much love and respect for. Um, I just looked up to Connor so much. Uh, it was just this exemplar missionary. And he's from Canada, eh? Is he a future guest, probably? Or are you trying to get a... Hopefully. We haven't been able to contact him, have we? Oh, really? Okay. We've tried. Um, We've tried. But uh, my my attempts to contact him on LinkedIn and Twitter is where he's lives most i have not had heard uh, back from him so if you have a connection i don't Jonathan, i know I, I haven't i haven't talked to him in a long time he lived in denver for a few years right after the mission and moved from canada to denver so when i went back to the air force academy at colorado springs i would meet up with him in denver oh, cool. and he was married at the time um so i tried to you know sucker so some poor girl into going on a date with me and then um <laughs> go up and hang out and do a double date with them or something. It's just such a good guy. But anyway, so I went to serve with Paul in Edinburgh. Our, our area was uh, Korstorfen, which is a little hill uh, there in Edinburgh. And, and, and Paul was, um, Paul was one of the most pivotal. Paul changed like a lot for me uh, and the whole dynamic I had his, he's so intelligent and he's so smart. And he and Connor had broken down, uh, preach my gospel and the, the planning and the numbers and like, and how to be effective, how to be effective with your time and with your teaching pool. And they had just done these really incredible things. And, and Paul was this big brain behind that. And the thing about the thing with Paul is that he was a zone leader and he had been my zone leader for several months. And I basically expected him to be no less than God himself, you know, as like a zone leader, because your expectations are so high. Right. And and you look up 
to your to your missionary leaders with such high esteem. And so it turns out that Paul is human. <laughs> and so Paul disappointed me because he was human. <laughs> and he wasn't this like perfect person that could walk on water. And so I would, you know, in my in my growing as a missionary and as a young leader, I was very hard on, I was really hard on Paul. He just couldn't ever like, um, he just couldn't ever like impress me <laughs> when I was like, you're supposed to be like the most impressive, one of the most impressive missionaries in the mission. But turns out he actually was, I was just, my perspective was just warped, right? Because of, because of me and my, my pride and my arrogance. And so that's, that's kind of the way it is with your first leaders too. You you come in yeah. expecting missionaries to be a certain way, and then your mission leaders even more so. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I, I remember day one in the mission home, and and you have your your welcome interview with President Reigns, right? And so you, I when I remember the so vividly, we go into his office and we sit down, and he takes those big mitts of his and he throws them on my knees, and he said, "Elder, would you believe that there are missionaries in this mission that don't make their bed?" And I was flabbergasted. I was flabbergasted. And he was like, would you believe me, Elder, if I told you that some missionaries don't wake up on time? And I, I think I'm literally thinking impossible. That is impossible. There is no such thing as a disobedient missionary. Any missionary that shows even a hint of disobedient, plane ride home. Get the heck out of here. You're done. <laughs> and so anyway, it was, it was basically President Breen's Again, a little bit of that's my Air Force background, right? Where I'm, I'm yeah. used to waking up early. I'm used to making make my your bed. bed. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I, I've, I've lived more strict rules than what missionaries had. And, um, and so that's just what you think missionaries are and certainly what your leaders are. And Paul, having been my zone leader and somebody that had, you know, mentored me and been my leader, I expected that. I expected perfection from him. And so... Um, and, and this is, you know, now we're getting into the, the deep winter in Scotland, right? So it's, it's now 2005 going into 2006 and, and Paul, I, and I didn't, I realized this, but I didn't have empathy, but Paul was going through a hard time. He was, he only had about six months left on his mission. He had worked so hard and he was tired and I think there was probably some of that seasonal depression playing effect as well. And I just had yeah. no empathy. I just had no empathy for it. It's like, let's do this. It's, you know, let's get out, let's work, let's, let's roll. And so I'm making this sound very one dimensional and it wasn't, our relationship wasn't one dimensional. It was, it was wonderful. And we had lots of laughs and good times together. But, but what happened is while I was serving with Paul, I, I broke like my, the, the uh, how do I want to say this the the contentious parts of my personality and this this pride and this this um, aggressiveness broke against the rock that was Paul's long suffering and if there's a Christ-like attribute that Paul Christensen had of which he has many but one of them that he had more than almost anyone I've ever met is long suffering and he was long-suffering and patient with me as I am driving the whip on him as it's probably sometimes felt. And so 
I was with Paul for three months uh, there in Edinburgh. And by the end of that three months, the pieces of this, this kind of rough abrasive part of my personality had crumbled and was all around me on the ground because of how good Paul was to me. And I actually remember he, he, he left and he went to serve with, um, he went to serve with Craig Rasmussen and they became traveling uh, APs for like three months until Paul went home. And I, I, um, I was in the office when Paul went home and I remember having dinner with him. It was the farewell dinner. We were having the farewell dinner together and then we were going to go hike Pratt's Hill and he was going to close his mission. And I just remember having dinner with Paul and just talking to him and just telling him how much I loved him and I appreciated him and apologizing <laughs> for that aspect of our companionship that was very much my fault and how hard I was on him. And I, I just have nothing but good wonderful things to say about Paul because by the end of that three months I was ready to rebuild myself and and I had recognized thank goodness how rough I had been again in that aspect and that I needed to change and I needed to build this charity that Joseph Bautista had shown me so well, right? And so I really needed a companion that was just kind and full of charity and <laughs> it's not a very macho word to use, but sweet. <laughs> I needed somebody that was sweet <laughs> to 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 rebuild and, and and who better who better for that than Colby Hawkins. And so Colby was my next companion uh, there in Edinburgh. And he was all of those things and more. And I remember, I remember just watching and observing, observing Colby and how he treated people with so much kindness and humility. And I would, I would try to mimic it. I would, I would pay attention to his words and to his facial expressions. And I would try to, and I was trying to like incorporate that because I knew that's what I needed. And so I only spent six weeks with Colby, um, but uh, they were they were a wonderful, wonderful six weeks in which, again, because of Paul and what and how much he meant to me and 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 set me up for Colby, who was kind of able to come in and just kind of refine a lot of those rough edges um, that I had or that I felt I had anyway. <clears throat> and uh, and during this time in Edinburgh, this is when the Chinese teaching pool just exploded. Um, and that was in large part because of the work of Connor Muirhead and Paul Christensen, UE. I don't know if you recognize that name. That's a, that's a fairly famous Chinese name in that convert pool. Uh, UE had been baptized in December right after I showed up. And from there, it just, it just went, it was just crazy. Um, I, my parents wrote to me, at one point, and they're like, are you still serving in Scotland? Because all we hear about is Chinese. And I'm writing Chinese in the emails. And I'm like, I said half a prayer in Chinese, in Mandarin, you know, and, and, and they gave me a Mandarin name. And like, and, and anyway, so the, the Chinese pool was incredible. And um, we were just teaching so many Chinese people. And we we um, and they all spoke English fairly well, but it could be challenging to to teach 
in English, some challenging gospel concepts, right? And so there was a Edinburgh, a University of Edinburgh student who was on exchange from America for the semester, just doing a semester abroad. And so the, the new students show up in the Edinburgh Award in early January, and we're just meeting them and saying hello. And one of them is like, yeah, um, I, served, I served my mission in Australia, Mandarin speaking. And I just looked, I looked right at him. His name is Sean Patterson. I looked right at him. And I said, Sean, you are here. You're not here to study at the University of Edinburgh. And you're not here to be a tourist and enjoy scholarly. You are here to teach these Chinese people. And he just looks at me like, what is this lunatic talking about? And I explained to him, I explained to him what was happening and all this massive Chinese teaching pool that existed. And I said, we need your help. And he was, he was awesome. He was coming out with us all the time to teach and he would teach in Mandarin. And also at this time we were bugging president brains and we said, we need a Chinese elder. 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 And finally a couple, I, I still remember to this day, a couple months later, I still remember him coming to me holding the letter. I, I don't know if it was an email or a letter. I don't remember, but it was from Salt Lake saying, we're sending you a Mandarin speaking elder and we just celebrated <laughs> and we we're just so excited uh we were just so excited about that and you know sean patterson went home at the end of that semester in june and justin wong showed up in july i'm pretty sure i think it was july so it was yeah. an almost seamless transition from <laughs> having a mandarin speaking missionary there and 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 chinese people are just getting baptized left and right all these students just they're just on fire and ue is there um, with his incredible personality and testimony, and he's there every step of the way. And so I just remember being so excited uh, when we, when Scotland was going to get a Mandarin-speaking elder. Um, and uh, I guess we can talk about that uh, later. I guess to, I mean just to close the loop on that. So I was I was serving I was serving in the office at the time that Justin showed up, and we, what we didn't realize is so. And I kept asking President Brains, I said, when is this Chinese elder showing up? And they're like, okay, he's going to the Preston MTC in June or whatever, and he'll show up in July. And I was like, what? Why isn't he going to Provo to learn Mandarin? You know, I, like, I thought that we were going to have a no-kidding missionary with a name tag on his chest in Mandarin, right, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's what I thought was going to happen. And so when Justin showed up, he had no idea yeah. that he was in Scotland to teach Chinese people in, in, in Mandarin. He had no idea. And so, and so I remember, so President Frederick was there now. And I remember talking to President Frederick. I was like, can, can I tell him? I want to tell him. Can I tell him? <laughs> and I'd been out of, you know, I'd been out of the, the Chinese teaching for a while. But, um, but uh, we had a case of copies of the Book of Mormon in Mandarin. And Marcus McBride is who we chose to train him because we knew this was going to be we knew this was going to be really challenging for whatever English companion was serving with Justin Wong. Because I I mean I had been there. Like you're sitting there and Sean Patterson or UE or somebody else is just talking in Mandarin. And then and then they finish talking and then everybody just looks at you and you're like, where are we? <laughs> so well, like, uh, 
so questions, you know, like <laughs> you're just sitting there, you don't really know what's going on. And so we knew that was going to be a challenge for the missionary. And, and, and the other challenge of that too, was there wasn't going to be a defined area. It was just going to be, there are Chinese people in Scotland, go teach them. That was it. That was the charge. And so you needed a missionary with that had a, that could be very responsible with that. And so Marcus McBride was perfect because he was responsible and mature and he was just so loving and he would, we knew he'd be patient and he would just be a great trainer for Justin. And so, <laughs> excuse me. So I just remember, I just remember standing up, up upstairs there and dragging out the, uh, this all these you know copies of the Book of Mormon in Mandarin and and we let Marcus tell him. Uh, I was like Marcus, you tell him, you know what what you guys are what your assignment is and what you guys are doing. So that he went up to Marcus went up to the map and he's like, well, Justin, our mission is all of this, and he he circled the entire Scot the country the entire country of Scotland, and then and then we're like, you're teaching in Mandarin, and then I just. Justin was so stunned. He almost didn't like comprehend what we were telling him. I remember looking at him in the eyes. I'm like, Justin, I need you to understand you are here to teach in Mandarin. And all he could say was my dad will be so happy. <laughs> yeah. I guess his dad thought he was like a failure or something for getting called to this English speaking mission in Scotland. Like, what are you doing? You don't, they know you speak Mandarin. So we're like, go tell your dad and then get to work. <laughs> so anyway, that was, that was all happening in, in Edinburgh. Uh, and so, and Colby and I were really blessed uh, to see, a, uh, you know, that Chinese teaching pool. And then uh, at the end of that six weeks, President Breen's called me and was like, all right, DePaul, I heard you're still really dodgy. So I'm going to bring you in a little bit closer. <laughs> so I moved into the mission home to serve with uh, Doug Poland. And um, <clears throat> Doug was in his last six weeks. Uh, before he was going home and then and so so Doug was going home in six weeks and then the Vrainses were going home four weeks after that and the and the Fredericks were going to show up and so President Vrains wanted me to be there and and kind of serve in the office through that uh, transition and so he told Doug and I he said so just you know remember up to this point I've just served in Edinburgh Falkirk and Edinburgh that's like maybe his own conference in Edinburgh. <laughs> like I haven't, I haven't been anywhere else. So, so president Breen's told Doug to put me in the car and to go drive the whole mission. Cause I needed to look, you know, this, we had not have Google maps or like this other stuff. Right. He's like, you need to teach him like where to drive to and like where everything is so that wow. he can drive the new mission president to the different, you know, buildings around the country. And so, <laughs> so Doug and I went on a road trip basically for six weeks. And as part of that, um, the, the ward mission leader in Edinburgh at the time was a wonderful man named uh, Lee McClemon, and he was from Stornoway and on, uh, on, up on the outer Hebrides there. And we hadn't had missionaries up there. And I don't know how, you know, we'd had missionaries on and off in Shetland and Orkney, but we'd never had anyone out in the Hebrides. And so there was a little branch up there. That's where the ward mission leader was from. And he said, he, he, he had told me, he said, there are five young men up there. They're all active right now, but they could really use some role models like missionaries. And would you, would you consider talking to President Brains about putting missionaries up on Stornoway? And so 
as part of this road trip, Doug and I went, <laughs> I think we went from Inverness. We left at like four in the morning and we drove to the West coast to a little town called, um, Bolapool, I think was the name. And we caught a ferry out to Stornoway. And, and when you're arriving in, I think it's like Stornobach is how they say it. But Stornoway into Stornoway, you see the little chapel right on the waterfront amongst the old buildings. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. This beautiful little chapel. So we showed up there and we were rock stars. We were celebrities. Like they, I mean, I hadn't seen missionaries in I don't know how long. And now there's this, you know, American and this, this, this young, or this missionary from Birmingham, <clears throat> who was there. And so we went out, so we met the, we, we stayed with the branch president. We stayed in his home and then we, we uh, traveled around and we met some of the different members and we did that for five days and just had, or had a, um, it was just, you know, it's so unique. The, the, the train up there is so unique. It's unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. Just, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like being on the moon, but it's beautiful. <laughs> there's no trees because it's way too windy. So there's no trees. It's just beautiful grass, rocks. But then you have the most pristine, white, sandy beaches with this crystal clear blue water that looks like it's, it looks like a beach on Jamaica. Except all, you jump in the water and you're dead all, in a minute. But. It's all glacier water, right? <laughs> yeah, it's all glacier water. Yeah. It's freezing up there. You'd, yeah, You'd be done real fast, but it is beautiful. And there's nobody there. You know, the houses are so spread out. So anyway, so we, you know, we just did this huge driving tour. And um, we, uh, so I could, you know, learn kind of where things were. And then we went, went up to Stornoway. It was just, it was just an awesome six weeks with Doug, you know, his last six weeks. And you guys know Doug. I mean, there's just... He's just so amazing, amazing. He, uh, his sense of humor, his love, um, is just so full of energy and so full of life. He just, if, if you're ever down or you just like need an injection of happiness, just go, you know, hang out with Doug. Doug's another one actually I saw after the mission uh, as well. And just somebody I, I have a lot of respect and love for. Um, can you believe these companions I've listed off so far? <laughs> Kevin Anderson, Joseph Bautista, Paul Christensen, Colby Hawkins, Doug Poland. I mean, it's just like, it's just, it's, uh, I mean, the cream of the lineup. crop. It's the cream of the crop. Anyone who thinks, yeah. who thought I was a good missionary or a good leader, like, look who I served with. Like, there's, that's it, man. I, I just, I'm just me. Like, I, <laughs> I had, I had amazing, amazing companions. And it's going to continue. You'll, you'll hear more names and that, that they're all, um, they're all like that. So, um, after six weeks with Doug, uh, and he was going home and president brains, uh, we we're talking and we we're talking about who my next companion is going to be. And he had, this was the, <laughs> he's like, you're going to choose your companion. I was like, Oh, that's cool. So he had two or three, he had two or three, uh, missionaries. He thought, you know, would be good to come into the office during this time. But none of them were the one that I wanted to serve with. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I wanted to serve with them, but there was one missionary that I was just dead set that I wanted to serve with so badly, but he was going home in six weeks. So it didn't make sense because, you know, the Vrinses were going to go home in four weeks and then he was going to go home in six weeks and then it was going to be all over again. Right. But I just insisted and, and President Vrins was like, okay, if that's who you want. So Craig Rasmussen was my next uh, companion. And, you know, I just, I just, everyone loves Craig, of course. Um, 
but especially me. And I just wanted to serve with him so badly, even if it was only for six weeks, even if it was, I knew it was going to be hard on him because uh, I, I listened to his episode. It was kind of interesting to hear him talk about it. He and Paul had just been traveling for three months and they were both just, they looked like they were just about to fall over. Like, do you remember? Do you, I know oh. Jackie had gone home by now, but do you remember I, re- Zach? I remember that. My these gosh. Guys, these guys had both just worn themselves out working. And, um, and so, but I just, you know, you'll see a little bit further on as well how selfish I am. But I was just, I just really wanted to serve with Craig. And, um, and so I, and so I, I convinced, I, per, I persuaded President Breens to let me serve with him, even though it was only going to be for six weeks, even though it wasn't one of the ones that uh, was potentially going to come serve with me. But, uh, <clears throat> but I remember Craig coming in and, and he, he wouldn't know he was tired, right? It's not like he acted tired or mopey or depressed or anything. Like he's just, he's Craig. He's just so full of, you know, that energy and that life and that Craig spirit and that humor. And, and um, he's just the most, uh, he's just such a good friend, and and this was this is where things kind of it was kind of stressful, right? The Breenses were going home, and the Fredericks were coming in, and and I remember talking to him. And I was like, "Don't worry about learning all of this, you know, AP stuff, and and this, you know, just like I just need you to be my friend and to be my companion, and and that's all. That's all I need. Um, I know that sounds like really selfish, and he did so much more than that in service of the of the entire mission." And he still had so much more teaching and mentoring uh, and leading to do in his last six weeks, which he did so admirably and so well. So I pretty much sent every single companion of mine home up to this point as well. <laughs> can I can I can I just jump in real quick? Yeah, so I remember, I remember that six weeks because I was in Hamilton and I was the district leader, and I remember you and Craig showed up to our district meeting one one. Monday morning and I was like crap <laughs> I hope I have prepared well enough to <laughs> oh, whatever to, to you know to teach with the APs here you know that's kind of a, a daunting thought for any district leader and I can close my eyes and see your face just like glowing and watching <laughs> everything that I was doing and Craig was just kind of like kind of laid Sleep. back with his arms clapped. <laughs> And I could, you could tell he was, he was tired and because, you know, Craig had been my, my zone leader prior to that in, uh, in Dundee. And I was, but that was one of my lasting impressions of, of both of you. Cause I, I could see the zeal in your, your face that you were just, oh my gosh, there was so much like power and um, excitement for the missionary work and what was to come from you and Craig had fought the good fight and he had just done everything that he possibly could to <laughs> make the most of his mission and bless his heart, you know, that he got to hang out with you for six weeks before he went home. But uh, that was one of my one of my very prominent memories. Like I can close my <laughs> eyes and we are in the Hamilton building for that uh <laughs> for that meeting it's pretty 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 vivid it's crazy that's awesome that's fun yeah he was uh he was just so good um he is <laughs> i i drug him through that experience and then my last six weeks was the complete opposite which i'll tell you about later but <laughs> i was chilling like a villain at the end of my mission um so let's see um yeah so the 
Yeah. So Craig and I were together. We, you know, it was kind of interesting. Like the Vrinzes were, were getting ready to go home. And that was, that was, that was hard. I mean, I had so much, I've always, you know, like having, having lost my father when I was young, I've always really latched onto prominent male role models. And so having, President Brains as a role model, like a father figure almost, was just so, so good for me. And maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, I got to serve there and, and be there so that he could, you know, I could, I could be a better father or husband someday because of the time I was able to spend close to him and the example that he set. And so getting ready to say goodbye to him was very hard. It was very emotional. And this new guy was going to show up with his wife and it was like, who cares? Get out of here. You know, like, <laughs> like you know, the, we've got the Marines. That's all we need. Right. And so they had just served this, this wonderful three years and, and, and you can't help but love him. And, you know, and he made mistakes as a mission president, he made mistakes. And there were times that he didn't have all of the information. And so he had an emotional reaction or he made a decision based on that. But as soon as he knew that it was wrong, or once he got the full story, he would make things right. And I think so many missionaries were on the receiving end of that, his, his love. And he's a, he's a big, powerful man. And so is, and sister Reigns is a big, powerful woman. And, and they, he, he could have been physically intimidating. He could have used that. And so many people do, right? I, you've seen this. I've seen this. Like, People who are large in stature using physical intimidation to to coerce a conversation to go a certain way. And he could have done that, and he didn't. He never did. Instead, it was just love and kindness. And the best, he always had the best interests of the missionaries at heart. And if he did make a mistake, he would correct it. And he would make sure to correct it with the missionary. He had no problem apologizing or or fixing a situation. Um, and his work ethic was unparalleled. Um, you know, in the summer, I remember, you know, in those June months, the sun comes up at <laughs> three in the morning or <laughs> sets at like two in the morning <laughs> and, and you, you know, you'd wake up and you'd walk out and it's six in the morning, six thirty in the morning, and he's on his hands and knees in the garden pulling weeds or he, I don't know if you remember on the, the stone, uh, gate of the back of the mission home where you drive in, there was a, I think it was a brass plate that had Scotland Edinburgh mission home and Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he would be out there polishing that and just scrubbing it. Wow. <laughs> and and yeah, or you'd see him, you know, in his mission op- in, in the office, just working, writing, writing letters or, or doing whatever business he needed to do. He's just, just a fine, just an incredible man. Um, an incredible example and I'm, I'm very thankful for the time I was able to spend uh, close to him <clears throat> there in Edinburgh and I was able to catch up with him after the mission as well a little bit I haven't seen him recently um, but I just I'll just have eternal love in my heart for that for that great man and, and his wife um, so but sadly it was time to say goodbye and uh, so Craig and I went to pick up the Fredericks from the airport and, you know, we're, we're in the airport or looking around for me and just hear this deep booming voice behind you, uh, elder over here. And, and there's 
there, there's your guy, right? There's the new mission president and his wife. And um, so we walk up to him and, and he, and he puts out his hand, you know, to shake my hand. And I remember doing that to president Green's when I first, as we all did, right. That's, that's the custom you shake hands. But President Reigns said, you know, we don't we don't shake hands in this mission, Elder. We hug. And then that huge arm, wham. Like, and I'm pretty sure his like whole short, you know, his whole hand could cover my shoulder blade. And it just hooks you. And it just brings you in. And you are enveloped in this person, you know, yep. physically and, and had been spiritually just enveloped in him. So I, uh, so I go up to, you know, I just... I, President Frederick walks up to shake my hand and I'm like, we don't shake hands in this mission, President. <laughs> we hug. And I just <laughs> do my best President Marines, like cook him and bring him in, which is uh, probably startled him a little bit. Um, and that was like hugging a, a bundle of steel cords. <laughs> he was so physically fit. You got, you, I'm sure you remember this sack. Like, yeah. I mean, he, he wound up putting a whole gym, I think in the mission home. Uh, he was just so physically fit and, uh, and, and sister Frederick was there. Uh, and, and we, um, and the Vrinzes, uh, came and they showed up as well, uh, at the airport. So we brought them down to where the Vrinzes were and they met, go back to the mission home. And, you know, the transition happened so fast. They were probably in the mission home together for 24 to 30 hours. And then the Vrinzes were gone and that was it. That amazes wow. me. It's that's incredible. that's how it is for all mission presidents. That transition, they just yeah, it's just so fast. Out. I mean, they they had dinner together. Um, the Fredericks were ex- exhausted, obviously, with jet lag. So so uh, after dinner, Craig and I took them on. We're like, hey, we'll take you on a. We have this great tour that we've put together of the city of Edinburgh. We've got a lot of like great, true, interesting facts. They're all you know very factual, very honest, well, and one hundred percent true and accurate. Oh you should have gosh. labeled it the Doug Pullen special oh, by that point. It was the Doug Pullen special. And you know, like, <laughs> you know, what was terrible about it is so Craig and I we're driving along and we're, we're saying these just most ridiculous things. And sister Frederick, Frederick, who has just the most wonderful heart is just so sincere. And she's like, Oh really elders? Like, Oh, that is, I had no idea that happened over here. That building with this or that after the third time, I just remember Craig and I looked at each other. We have to stop. This. We, felt up. So, we felt so bad. Just <laughs> lie. Like we just met these people, and we are like, I've told them more lies than truths. <laughs> I've just been lying through my teeth. You know, another, uh, another funny thing when we first met him, you know, like, hey, I'm Elder Paul. I'm Elder Rasmussen, and and uh, and President Fred was like, hey, it's great to meet you guys. Um, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from, you know, Seattle. I was like, oh, that's where I joined the church. I'm a convert. You know, that's where I joined the church. And then, and then, you know, Elder Rasmussen, where are you from? And then, and then, uh, how much, how much longer have you got on the mission? And I just remember Craig just got the biggest smile ear to ear as he looks President Frederick dead in the eyes and goes, I go home in two weeks. <laughs> and President Frederick's face just falls like, oh my gosh. And he looks less at me, weeks like, than you have years. Yeah, less weeks yeah. than you have years. And he's like, uh, Elder DePold, when do you go home? I was like, I go home in two weeks as well. <laughs> and I'm like, and you're on your own, so good luck. <laughs> oh man yeah that was that was pretty funny so they were they were pretty happy to know i had more than a year (laughs) Uh, so could use and abuse me as as needed so anyway so and you know that so the next morning president frederick and president breen sat down in the mission office together 
and they shut the door. And and do you remember in the in the office, um, in the mission president's office on the wall, all the pictures of the missionaries? Yeah. So and that's how we did moves, right? So all the all the missionaries were up there and with their name and commandings who they served with different areas. If they had driver's licenses, because that was always a big deal <laughs> um at the year mark. And so um so they went in there and they sat down and they probably spoke for two, three hours. And then they came out and uh and president and you know, we're sitting there waiting, and then um President Greens is like, Well. He's all yours, elders. And then he and Sister Rains got in the car and they drove to Glasgow and that was it. They were gone. Just wow. just that fast. So and, and and incredible. we knew like man, I knew that was emotional on me. I knew that I knew different missionaries were gonna react to that differently, right? So um so some missionaries were like really close to the President Green. I'm sure we all were to some extent, right? But some were closer than than others. We knew that some missionaries were gonna be um, yeah. We're going to kind of struggle, have a tough time with this transition, and so I, you know, it was my prayer that I could just be, hopefully, a good point of continuity and and a hug and a friendly face, and just kind of um, present. You know, the work that the Vrinzes did was so pivotal and important for the foundation, so that the Fredericks could come in and and build on that with what was about to occur. Um, so anyway, uh, and then. Um, and then at the end of that moves, we had a huge mission group coming in. There were like 15 elders and sisters coming in. And, and so we sat down in the office and president Frederick had never served a mission before. You know, this was his first, this was his first mission. So we needed to train him on everything like, you know, moves and summiter councils and interviews and, and everything. So, so we, we sat down in there and, and Craig's pretty new too. Right. And, and we took off, you know, all these holes from this big group about to go home. And so now there's all these holes up on the board. And then there's 15 new missionaries on the side. And for President Frederick, the trainer was the most important missionary in the mission. And, you know, you think about it, too, like his youngest son was on a mission at the time. And so he thought, who would I want training my son? That's who I want training. And, and he was like, I won't have APs. And you'll go train or what we won't have zone leaders or this or like, like if we will have good trainers, like that's the most important. That was his intent. Right. Yeah. And so we, we, we sat down and the board, you know, the board was up there and then, uh, and then they just looked at me and they're like, okay, make it happen. <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, and moves was always an interesting experience because it was, um, it was so neat. Um, you know, you'd move, you'd move pictures around. Right. And and someone would have an idea like, Oh, why don't we try, why don't we put elder so-and-so here? Everything, everything was on the table. Everything was under consideration. How was the missionary doing? How was the companionship doing? How was the teaching pool? How was the, the ward or the branch in the area? Like, like all of that was on the table for discussion as far as like, where are you going to put missionaries? And, and sometimes, you know, you'd move a picture next to somebody and it was like, wow what an incredible companionship that's a powerhouse send it you know and then um and there were missionaries that were struggling too you know and so it was like you know one of the things president breen's uh one of his kind of philosophies and moves and that was uh it was really really hard to take a struggling missionary and put him with a a, a good missionary a missionary that wasn't struggling and not have that good missionary get pulled down it was very very rare 
that you could put a that a good missionary would bring a struggling missionary up, right? right. And so, and and President Frederick thought that as well. And so, um, it was it was always an interesting experience at moves to try to, you know, create the best companionships you could, set the missionaries up for success. I mean, we knew that there were areas that were hard. And that were didn't have teaching pools, and that were chopping, and that you know it was just there were some hard areas, there were some hard um, wards and branches to serve in. There were some hard missionaries to serve with. You know, it's just it's just we all have different personalities. It's just it's a fact. That it is what it is. And so, what you know, how could you set up each missionary for success? How could you, um, you know, do the best thing for the mission at large as well? And so. Moves was always a really, moves was always a really cool experience. It was always very spiritual. Um, there were the the Lord would, if He needed to, would make it crystal clear what needed to happen if you were kind of stumbling around with it a little bit. So, um, and and it was obvious even with President Frederick right out the gate is just deep love for the missionaries. That was one thing. There was no, there was not one minute of loss of love. Um, how am I trying to say this? There was, we had one mission president there, right? Who loved us all so much and he left. And the minute he left, we had a mission president who also just loved us so much, even though he didn't know us yet. And he didn't know what was really going on yet. And he was still jet lagged, but he just had so much love for the missionaries and he wanted the best for him. And so there wasn't one minute we didn't have a mission president that loved us and was concerned and cared for us. And, and just watching them, they were so wise to, you know, there was, there was a couple of times a missionary went home and that was, that was tough. And there was heart wrenching for all of us. And especially for the mission president. And, you know, you think about when a missionary goes home, there's a stigma associated with that that has to be taken into consideration. And so President Vrains would call stake presidents and bishops, in addition to Salt Lake City, right? And see, like, if this missionary goes home, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the missionary? What's going to happen to the family? How is the leadership there going to react to it? You had to be so careful always with the missionaries where they were serving. If, if one was going to go home early, which happened, you know, several times um, while I was there at least. And, and they were just so thoughtful and careful and so full of love. Like I remember, uh, you know, this episode was on recently, so I'll talk about it, but Ashley Devine, when he went home, so I didn't know him at all. He, he was serving in Sterling. I was with Doug Poland at the time, so I was pretty new in the office and uh and president Breen's came to us and he said elder depold i want you to go pick up ashley and bring him here by yourself i want you to go by yourself and pick him up and bring him here <clears throat> and so i said okay uh so i went to pick him up and i didn't really know him like i said and, and we knew, you know ashley knew he was going to go home um and so i went to pick him up and what should have been this really awkward um stressful uncertain situation and conversation between the two of us instead i picked him up and we're driving in the car from sterling back to edinburgh it's only like an hour drive 
And the spirit is so strong. And I am thinking to myself, wow, like the spirit is so strong right now. And I just feel this, I just feel this love for this elder that where is this coming from? It's obviously coming from God, right? And we had the most wonderful conversation, the two of us in the car. And I knew that he was going home honorably. God just had different, they just had a different plan for him. Like the timing that we all think is supposed to happen and the and the two years and everything that we think is supposed to happen is not, we all know this now. I think we're all probably wise enough and mature enough in life by now, right? That God has his plan and he works in mysterious ways. And, um, and Ashley just needed, he needed to go to a different mission eventually. Right. And so I just, I just remember having this wonderful, wonderful conversation with him. Um, and I think that the mission presidents, both of them were constantly blessed with God's love for the missionaries in their hearts. And because of that, they were able to act nobly and with this great love for all of us all of the time. Um, so anyway, that was, uh, that was certainly President Frederick, you know, immediately as well. And I'm glad you shared that because I know there's a lot of missionaries who probably have questions in their mind of like, you know, the craziest things happen, right? Why was I with this companion or in this area this time? And yeah, to know that the motivation behind that is the spirit and love that makes a big difference. There was so much, there was so much love. It was, it was almost overwhelming sometimes how much love there was. Um, it was always something I wish could have been captured. I wish it could have like taken a picture of it, you know, and shown the missionaries and gone, you need to see this. You need to see how the mission president talks about you behind your back, what he's saying about you behind your back. I wish you could hear that. And I wish you could see that and see the, just the incredible love. And again, God was planting that in our hearts and it was happening to me. It was happening to everyone in the mission home. It didn't matter who was in the mission home serving at the time. Mission presidents, office elders, APs, um, the office couple, didn't matter. Like, we're just so full of love uh, for the missionaries. And and um, and not every move was perfect, certainly. Um, but it was, yeah, I was always motivated by just this incredible love. Um, and at the time, too, it was interesting leading up to um, President Frederick coming in. Uh, we, we'd been in Glasgow and we were driving from, we were driving in Glasgow. I think we were coming home and we're on this road. I don't know what road it was, but we're up on a road and uh, it was kind of up on like a a ridge almost. And you could look left and you could look right. And they're just houses as far as you can see. Glasgow is a massive city, right? And you just see houses like forever. And, and this, I just had the strongest spiritual experience and it. It basically said, you need to flood this city with missionaries was, was essentially the message. And I had the same, the same experience in Edinburgh and, um, and Dundee, uh, as well. And then what, as a result of that, as president Frederick came in, we opened up all these new areas in these, in these big cities and these big wards. And at the time, I didn't exactly know why, but what happened was or what was about to happen was member missionary work and these big wards and these different places needed more as it turned out needed more missionaries and so 
we were able to open up a bunch of uh, new areas across the cities. And, and there were several other things that were happening at the time. <clears throat> I won't go into, into all the, the details, but I, looking back at it, I can see the Lord prepping our mission for member missionary work. And I can see it's it just so it was in hindsight, it was so evident that that was about to, that was about to happen. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, Craig, Craig was going home. So it was, uh, I, I knew who my next companion uh, was going to be. Um, again, I got to, I got to pick him. Um, and there was no doubt who I wanted to serve with. And that was Trevin Hout. Um, uh, he was up in Dundee at the time. Uh, just, just this incredible man. He, he would, uh, he would write me little notes in my, in my script. He'd write it a note, like on a post-it note, like a little, just a little note to me. And he would leave it in my scriptures for me to find. And I still have those in my scriptures. He's just so thoughtful and kind and so sincere. He had such a big heart for, for the missionaries and for the members and, in a great sense of humor. Um, and do you remember he always had a Gumby? Yes, he did. That he took around. <laughs> there was in every picture. It photobombed every picture. So he yep. always had Gumby with him. Uh, he always had <laughs> he kept Gumby it in him. his two coat pocket. And every time a picture <laughs> yeah. happened, he would pull it out and it was in the picture. If you remember that, my yeah, gosh. He was... Trevin was so good at that time because, again, in this uncertainty and as people are, you know, as missionaries are trying to like develop a relationship with the new mission president, you know, he was there. He was a well-known missionary. He just had this huge personality, just so full of love. And so he was perfect for, for me, of course, and then for President Frederick, but then for all the missionaries, because we'd show up at all these different places and he would just bring this massive, you're like this too, Zach, this massive like aura of love that would just be felt by everybody. And it was just this, I think it was a real source of like comfort and familiarity and, and, and kindness and smiles, right? Like you show up and, and Elder Hout is here and it's like, it's awesome. You know, it's awesome because Elder Hout is here. And so he was just so good during that time. I think as some missionaries were, um, were trying to like go through that transition and then member missionary work, of course, was about to get stood up and, there were rumblings of that uh, about to happen. And so I was with Trevin for three months before he went home. So another companion killed out. So as you can see, I'm not a good companion because they all went home. <laughs> they all went. They went oh, home for a good reason. Oh, Don't say that. They all went home. Yeah, they did. Um, and he was, you know, I was just so happy to serve with him because um, I just, you know, had so much love for him. And, and Zach, at this time, you know, you were up running Aberdeen. And we just had so much confidence in you. It's funny listening to you talk about being up there with Stuart um, Pad and because he went down to Glasgow after that, right? For the yeah, because he was part of the music group. Uh huh. The music group, yeah. So it's interesting because you know, putting like choosing zone leaders and putting zone leaders together was always challenging because there were so many. First off, there were so many people that could do that, right? There's so many. We had, especially at this time of the mission, like we had so many good missionaries. Yeah, we did. So many good missionaries. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, I'll talk about it more later, I guess. But um but we knew like, okay, we're gonna put Stuart and Zach together. 
I bet they're going to clash. Why are they going to clash? Because they just have these big personalities and these big hearts. And it's funny hearing you talk about it in your episode and you, you're very self-depreciating about it. And you're probably way too hard on yourself, to be honest, because I remember Zach, like going up, like you'd come in for Zometer Council and it was like your, your aura, your personality of love extend, extended like three to four feet out from you. Right. And so I remember having to wade through that right like it's like a it's like a it's like being in a stiff wind right you can just feel this invisible force pushing you so you have to like get through that and then give you this big hug right and and that's just who you are and that's who who Stuart and so many other zone meters are as well as like Accurate. of course there's there's going to be there's going Thank to be there's going to be clashes there's going to be clashes because you guys are big personalities and you are you are just so full of love. How do you fit all of that in a room? You can't fit that in a British flat. Are you kidding me? You can't fit that in a British flat. So you're going to yeah. put these two missionaries together in these little, this little Scottish flat, and it is going to, it is going to, it's going to push the walls out, man. Because, because that's just who you guys are. You guys were amazing. All like, all the zoometers we had. Um, I mean, always, but during that time, during that transition, was just so good. Um, I was just constantly in admiration, like in genuine, sincere admiration of you guys, because you're, you're out there on the front lines doing the work, man. You're in the trenches, like doing the missionary work. And you know what, you know what an AP does? I'll tell you what an AP does. An AP tells the zone leader, zone leaders, like what the president, what they've heard the president say, <laughs> like the little things they've heard the president say. And then, and then they tell the mission president what they hear the zone leader say. <laughs> That's right. And then, yeah. and then you go and you spend time with the zone leaders who are doing this amazing work and you, you take it to the other zones so that they hear about it. But you take all the credit for it. That's the key. That's the key. That's why people thought I was really good. I was just <laughs> taking credit for everything else going on across you know, the zone leaders. So you guys were just all so amazing. Um, just the rock of the mission and everybody could rely on you. Um, mission president could rely on you. The missionaries could rely on you. It was just, a, it was just so much fun, you know, being able to go around the mission during that time. And so president Frederick is like, we, we need to do member missionary work. Like I, I think that I, I don't know the actual moment, the, the genesis of this, but I think it was back when he was doing training in Salt Lake city. And at the time, Elder Ballard was, the apostle kind of in, in charge of missionary work. And this was one of his focuses, right? Was member missionary work. And so, and so president Frederick showed up and he said, this was his vision, right? Like I want to do member missionary work, make it happen. And we're like, sweet. So I just told you a great secret. What does an AP do when the mission president tells him what to do? They go to the zone leaders. <laughs> they bring the zone leaders in, which is exactly you. You were there, Zach. They, we, you remember this? We brought all of you guys in, and we're like, "All right, this is this is where we're going to go. How are we going to do it? And then how am I going to take all the credit for it when nobody's paying attention?" So, um, so that was it, right? That was that was like where it started, and it was you know it was a it was it was this huge mind shift, right? It was. You know, I remember, I remember all, all the things you guys remember, right? Like missionaries being proud of the calluses on their knuckles from chopping on doors, right? And 
Um, and if you were at a dinner appointment for longer than an hour, you felt guilty because you needed to get your, you know, little behind out and, and knocking doors in the rain. And, and the more rain and wind, the better, right? Because that was like true sacrifice. So, you know, that was that was when your that was when your wife got hotter. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, so it, it was that. And missionaries feeling guilty, like like you you. I'm sure you both felt guilty. I know I did. I there were times on my mission I felt guilty because I I was like not chopping enough doors maybe or, or, or whatever that was. So, um, so this was a very, very big shift that we needed to make. And, um, and wow. I mean, you just see what happened, but, but so the interesting thing on president Frederick's side was he brought in all the stake presidents for a dinner. And so you remember there were five stakes, right? What to Matt, to mirror our five zones. And so he brought in all five stake presidents and they had a dinner together. And then he basically outlined his vision and he said, this is, this is how I want the mission to run. And, and he uh, got a lot of pushback. There were only two stake presidents of the five that were on board with that vision. And the other three basically rejected it or um, were not uh, amenable to it. So um I remember how frustrated he was with that. Uh, that was that was, I think, his first uh, shock, maybe, of like rejection. That we all, you, you all, we all had it, right? We all had it. We all mm-hmm. had it. We all remember yeah. that that rejection, that first splash of cold water. What do you mean right? you don't want to be baptized? <laughs> yeah. Everybody wants to be baptized. Um, so that was, that was his first one. That was his first like rejection. And I, I know that really affected him a lot. Um, and so, but nevertheless, we were going to move forward with this. Right. And so now we had to go to these missionaries. So, so the, the two, the two stake presidents were, um, Douglas Yates and Paisley and then, um, Daryl Watson in Dundee, who's a mission president right now, I think. Uh, over in Europe so those were the two stake presidents who said yes we're in and so we so we're like great um and then you know to the other in the other zones we were like we had to go to the missionaries and say okay this is where we're at now we need you to go earn the trust of your of your leaders and of, of your church members that was the point right we want you in members homes all of the time teaching And what that's going to do is you're going to become amazing teachers and you're going to gain the trust of the members. They're going to see you teaching and how good you are at teaching. And they're going to be like, I want these guys or gals teaching my friends. And so I just, you know, we remember this as zone leaders at the time and and taking that message. We're like, okay, here, here it is. Now take this back to your zones. Um, And so you guys were the ones that went and, and, and delivered that initial message. And, uh, and I just remember missionaries all the time, like, are you saying that I can play a board game or something in a member's home? Or like, it was just, there was now going to be so much trust put in the missionaries. And then we're clear about it. Like, yeah, you can go and waste away in a member's home, right? You can, like, there, you can go and waste time or you can go and you can be effective and, uh, with your time. And, and anyway, I, I think what the missionaries did in the Scotland mission after that is just unbelievable it's just incredible and i know some of the other missionaries have shared that um already but what what an amazing group of missionaries we had 
uh, at that time and, and then later as well to like to take that vision forward and then and then to make that effective because you also think I feel like I'm reliving the past a little bit. <laughs> it's like you you know how effective that is in the sense of you know you're, the members are bringing their friends and baptizing their friends like that's the, the convert. That's yeah. that's the one you want at church, right? It's your friends. So anyway, um, anyway, so three amazing months with uh, Elder Hout uh, until he went home, and then um, and then David Pilkington uh, was my next companion, and Pilkington was. Um, so good. He he did this thing where if <laughs> you would like you would say something funny, you know, that would make him laugh, like you know, and he would quote it like the next day, like he was quoting a movie, like a popular movie, and then just bust out laughing. <laughs> and you just felt amazing about yourself, right? You're like, I've got all these quotable quotes because. <laughs> <laughs> because uh because he would just quote you <laughs> and he would laugh i mean what an he was he was awesome uh just loved my time with him uh i was only with him for six weeks uh, and then it was time to boot me out of edinburgh uh after having been there for a year <laughs> um and so i just had a great great time with him and 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 watching at this point, watching the missionaries on fire with his member missionary work, like I wanted a piece of it too. <laughs> I wanted back in, you know, as an aide, as an assistant, you you had you still have those experiences, but they're fleeting because you're on exchanges. So you have, you know, one teach with an investigator or a member, whoever that is, and you feel the fire of that, and that keeps you going. But then you don't, you might not ever see that person again. So, um, just. Oh, and I should also I should also mention the the office elders we had were also incredible missionaries. And uh, so Garrett Smith was in there at that time. Um, he'd come in from Inverness, and then um, Daniel Birka from Norway. Uh, Lear Stanley was there for a while. Um, Elder Balak was there for a while. Uh, Elder Money Ryan Bruce uh, was there for a little while. But then John O'Brien was there, and he. Uh, he was like my best friend basically the whole time I I was um, there. I just love him with all of my heart. Just an incredible man. I listened to his episode. <laughs> you know, he's just from Podunk, Kentucky. And then he, he remember he talked about going to college in the Bay Area in California. The, you know, you didn't mention Stanford. It's Stanford. <laughs> yes. Yes. I was like, I was listening to that in the car. I was just yelling like, come on, John. <laughs> like, like, how do you think a tall, skinny white kid from Kentucky winds up at Stanford? Like that, unless he has some connections that we, none of us know about, like it's just <laughs> his own genius and merit, you know, it's just an incredible guy. Yeah. Um, carried him to Stanford and then he's going and getting PhDs in fit like in physics. Like, like, here's my surprise face, but it's like, he's just so, he was so good. But you know, I remember, so this is some, this is another selfish thing. And he, he talked about this in his episode. So I'll just mention it here. Um, he talked about being in the mission home for six months. That was 100% me. <laughs> it was time to move him several times. And president Frederick was like, yeah, you know, he, he, it was time for him to go like, be a district leader and get this member missionary work going. Like he's just so, he's so good, so good. And, and get back in the field, you know, and get to work. Um, and I was like, Oh, well, you know, 
he's got this mission home thing really humming like you know think about his brain right like that the mission home was just humming because of all of his work right and so i was like yeah i don't think it's time to to you know move him uh yet and so <laughs> uh, <laughs> so i don't know if john listens to this but hashtag sorry not sorry um for keeping you in the mission home for six months with me so i uh hundred uh, percent that was I made sure that he he stayed there with me and and I regret nothing. I loved every minute I got to spend with that guy. Um, he was just uh, just I, I can't uh, express how much I love him. and you know I all my longest companion was three months so John was was in a way my longest companion for six months and and <laughs> and uh, just just a great great man. And you know what's funny is uh, so anyway, so this next part, um, so we're we're at moves and it's it's i guess november now uh of 2006 and um and it's and we're we're sitting in the office we're doing moves and one of the dundee zone leaders was moving uh i can't remember who it was or where they were going fish not brown anyway so he'd gone home by that point yeah he'd certainly you're right you're you're right i can't remember who it was anyway so there was a there was an empty spot um up up uh as a dundee zone leader next to david stain and so we're sitting there i'm looking at that empty spot we're talking about that spot and i'm looking at him like that's me that's 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 supposed to be uh, me going up to dundee and we're we're just kind of sitting there quietly and we're looking at it and we talked about a couple different missionaries going there I was like, man, that's supposed to be me. And President Frederick turns and he looks me dead in the eyes and he says, you know who I think should go up there? I was like, who's that president? And he said, you. <laughs> I was like, yep, that seems right to me as well. And he's like, good, because I already told President Watson you're coming. <laughs> <laughs> so Daryl Watson, you know, he he was all in. And, and now in this October, November timeframe, he'd actually called just prior to that, he had called President Frederick and he said, I don't want a single missionary in my stake chopping doors. Wow. Not a single one. So you send me missionaries that are going to do, get this member missionary work done. And so we basically, um, so I was like, yep. So, so I was, so I was going to go there and then, and then President Frederick was like, pick your, pick your zone. <laughs> so it was, not all, like not all of it. Like we weren't going to just like move everybody out and move new people in or anything like that. Like there were a lot of really good missionaries there. And then, and then, but we we're like, okay, what other missionaries could we put in there to really like bring Daryl Watson's vision of member missionary work, state member missionary work in his stake of life. And I was like, Oh, I, I know a good one. John O'Brien, he should go there. <laughs> so, so John O'Brien went to Dundee. Hmm. I wonder how that happened. But the uh, same day, same, same day I did. <laughs> uh, oh my yeah. gosh. And, uh, and he went to serve with um, Garrett McLeod from Canada. Eh? Garrett, yeah. awesome. It's just so good. Uh, it's just so good with member missionary work. And then, and then so many others like Quinn Coford, Brady Cassidy. Um, gosh, who else was there? Oh, this is terrible. Spencer Streeter. Oh man. Who else? Anyway, it was a, it was definitely a stocked, it was a stocked zone and it, it just took off immediately because the missionaries in the zone were just so good. 
And uh, President Watson and I spoke on the phone every Tuesday night. And we had like a correlation and we went through every single church unit and his stake and talked about how the members are reacting. And then he would, you would basically go and put pressure on branch presidents and bishops as needed uh, to, to really bring this vision to life. So Dundee just, just exploded. Um, and it was just incredible. Like you, you can't put guys like Quinn Coford in the zone and not just see awesome things happen with his, with Brady Cassidy. I mean, just the, they were just, you know, this powerhouse um, in the Dundee being a ward there. And then, so I was serving with David Stain and he was just the, how do you, how can you be like so cool and yet so like just the perfect missionary at the same time, right? It doesn't seem like these two worlds should collide and yet they did. And so, you know, he, he'd been serving there for a little while. He showed up in the Bingham Ward and all the young men are just like flocking to him, right? And he's got his accent from Sheffield and just so cool. He's just so cool. Uh, everyone wanted to be uh, like him. And so we, we were together for three months there in Dundee. Um, had an awesome time. Just watched the, just watched. It was so neat, you know, being back in the, in the field, like kind of full time with my, you know, back in my own area again. And, and um, we just had some amazing experiences and some wonderful uh, investigators. And it was just an incredible, it was just an incredible time. We, some missionaries came and went uh, during my time there. One of the ones that came over was James McCabe, who was another by name request of mine. <laughs> um, and he he just furthered everything and then we had the sisters in Perth we went through many different sisters out there in Perth and the Perth branch was kind of struggling and not really on board but the sisters just you know so diligent in attacking that out there um, anyway it was just it was Dundee like Dundee was amazing uh, and to be in the Bingham Ward just this big ward very similar to Edinburgh a lot of different families a lot of different personalities and just so full of energy. And so being in the Bingham Ward um, and with all those missionaries too, like they're just so, it was just a gang of missionaries at church and ah, it's just fun. It was just fun. Um, so I was with, uh, I was with him uh, for three months and then, and then he moved. And then my next companion was Adam Payne there in Dundee. And at this point on my mission, I've been out for 20 months-ish. And he was my first junior companion. I was finally a senior companion. <laughs> I had arrived, boys. So <laughs> I was in charge, finally. I'm pretty sure that's right. I think David, I think Dave Stein was older. He might have been younger than me, actually. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, so Adam Payne was, he's from Canada. Um, he's stoic in a word, like stoic. Like he, he could wade through any, anything thick or thin and just crush it. And um, he was a young, younger missionary. He'd been out over a year um, and just so excited and just so full of, you know, the spirit of the member missionary work and the ward immediately loved him. Um, and just he just did he just did awesome. So we were we were together for three months. Um, just really enjoyed serving with him. And then then we were basically going into my last six weeks um, of the mission. And I remember so I've been in Dundee for six months, and 
um, <clears throat> all these incredible things that happened in the zone. And I remember at interviews sitting down with President Frederick and and basically expressing I would just really like to just be a missionary, like a like put me with like a young district leader or young like just a young missionary and um I, that's just that's just how I want to spend my last six weeks. <clears throat> and so um so president for my last six weeks I went to Kilmarnock with Chris Freiner uh from Las Vegas. So now you've heard all the names. Can you believe <laughs> can you believe those names? <laughs> I like the, the names the, the names are on like well, all each of my companions is just unbelievable uh, to me. Like, you know, you have Kevin Anderson, Joseph Bautista, Paul Christensen, Colby Hawkins, Doug Pollan, Craig Rasmussen, Trevin Hout, David Pilkington, David Stain, Adam Payne, and then Chris Frainer, who is just such a spiritual, he is, had power, had priesthood power. Like, he is just this big smile. Um, and just so just so full of the spirit and uh the zeal and so we um i just loved i loved just six weeks with him and just being a missionary like he was the district leader there and it was like good luck <laughs> i'm not doing anything related to district meetings or zone meeting or anything i don't want anything to do with it just i'm just a missionary like i'm just here to Oh, it was so good. It was such a good six weeks. And then President Frederick actually gave me a, a farewell gift. And so I, I actually count this as my last companion as well. President Frederick got permission from the uh, from the general authority there, or maybe there's area presidency, I don't remember. But UE came and and was a a member of our companionship for a week. And he lived with us and he did all of the missionary things, all of, followed all of the mission rules. He, he wasn't set apart. He didn't have a badge or anything like that. But he was an official. He was officially sanctioned by the church and by the mission president to come with us. That was that was a gift to me from President Frederick um, to have UE come out and live with us for a week. And uh, and he was a, a missionary with us, and that was just a really really fun fun week um, out there. Um, and so. Yeah, and that was that was all she wrote. Two two wonderful years. I just can't express like how much my companions mean to me and and how how thankful I am. I was I was thinking about this earlier. Um, I don't necessarily think about the mission every day, but I live the effects of it every day, and a huge part of that is the companions I serve with. One of the one of the difficulties that some families experience is um, abuse. It gets passed down through the generations, right? And so, and and hopefully it tapers off eventually. But I grew up with a little bit of that uh, in my childhood. Not as bad as some, but probably worse than others. And my very much my life today. I have a wonderful marriage and I have a wonderful relationship with my children who aren't scared of me or they don't flinch when I'm around. And that is because of 
who my companions made me and who they who they changed me into and i just owe so much of them because i know i know deep inside there's a beast with white hot rage for blood that wants to raise a hand and strike and it doesn't come out because of my companions and the wonderful men that i served with who changed my life and i live i live the blessing of that every single day in my home and i if any of my companions hear this i don't think there is a better way or a better there's not a better way that i can express or a better thing that i can say to express my gratitude for my companions and the love that i have for those men and the happiness i have in my marriage and with my children and in my home because of because of those men so if any of them listen you've impacted my life forever and i will be eternally grateful um, for for that wow i'm sorry i'm tearing up because i you know i experienced that love that you have for your companions and you showed that love to every missionary that you came in contact with your entire time in scotland and so um there's not a question in my mind that your companions will listen to your episode and the words that you shared to us uh, shared with us tonight jonathan so thank you so much yeah i was <clears throat> i i it was unbelievably blessed with who i got to serve with so i'm just i'm thankful every day for that i live the effects of that every day what a time like how many good how many amazing missionaries do we have in scotland <laughs> you know? I, I just mean, i look at the roster sometimes i look around at like what was happening during that time and what missionaries were doing i was just in awe constantly these all these good ideas and all this all these very intelligent actions and amazing teaching and and oh, it was just it was an unbelievable time to serve in scotland and there were so many good missionaries after. And I think that hopefully, you know, you and I and Jack and everybody else were able to like pave the way for that success that 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 came and and just awesome, awesome missionaries that picked up that that banner and, and carried it forward. Just I'm just in awe of the missionaries, honestly. Just and and listening to him here them here on these episodes, you know, like Martin and and Lucas and John O'Brien and, and you guys. I was just I'm just I'm just in awe just in awe. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Jack and I have reflected on it quite a bit with those that were before my time and the evolution period that truly was while we were in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Because we've talked many times with other missionaries who came in prior to preach my gospel and still had the purple dragon as their course book. And then that evolved into teaching from the principles in that book to from your own heart. Then preach my gospel came into the fray and it just, it evolved. Like it's been fascinating for Jack and I to both see the evolution and also realize that we were part of that in mm -hmm. such a way that uh, it really did. We, we were, foundation layers for amazing things in scotland and um you know i cannot say anything more than how grateful that i am for having been part of that 
that army that did those things. And you're right. I mean, you listed off all of these great missionaries and there are great, great missionaries that have been left off that list, but nonetheless, Mm -hmm. there were very few, if any, that we couldn't come in contact with and say, you did great things for the people of Scotland in whatever level you felt that you made an impact, you've made an impact. And that's, that's really the, the, a, a true testimony of these conversations we continue to have with, with each missionary is some people have this perspective of themselves where it's like, wow, I don't feel like I did a whole lot. You know, they look at the, the leadership like yourself and others. And they think, well, I wasn't to that level. And it's like, you know what you did, what you were asked to do and you impacted the wards, the people you had your own unique experiences that were necessary because mm-hmm. we couldn't just do it each as individuals. We had to collectively do it together in order to accomplish the things that we accomplished both then and now into the future. That's, so. that's, that's exactly right. And there were so many, there were so many missionaries that could have been in any of those missionary leadership positions as an example, or there's yep. so many, like, you know, I, you know, I've just, shared very personally why I needed those companions or, you know, I maybe I needed that time with president Frederick and president Breen so that I could be shaped and molded so that I could be, you know, so, so I could have a happy home and be happy in life, you know? And, and so if maybe, maybe we worked out a deal before in the pre-existence, like look, Zach, <laughs> I need this one, right. Or, or whoever it was like, you know, that you guys let me have this one so that I could serve with those people and, and have those experiences so that I could be shaped because I needed, you know, that's what I needed at that, at that time, despite how many other people were more capable or more talented or more, more just intelligent or whatever that was like, the, just they were, could have done that, you know, instead of me. And so I'm thankful for the selflessness and whatever decisions that were made there to allow me to have those experiences. I certainly needed them. And, um, and looking around at the mission as well as like all the different creativity that came in, like, like look at Zach Clark with his music ability, right? Like I remember president Frederick just having this idea for this music group. And so he was like, I'm going to ship out Zach's cello and spent who knows how many thousands of dollars to ship this cello out. And it was so funny watching Zach reunite with it. It was like, it was like watching a, a long lost friend or twin reunite, you know, with his cello. He was so happy. He couldn't believe it. And, you know, I talked to him about the, the cello before and um, I, I told him, I said, uh, you know, one of my favorite pieces on the cello is uh, Ennio Marconi, The Mission. Uh, there's, there's two pieces. There's um, uh, Gabriel's oboe and then the falls. And I, and, and Yo-Yo Ma plays it, if you know Yo-Yo Ma is a you know, really famous cellist. And so I told Zach this. And so Zach takes this cello out and he's like, listen to this, Elder DePold. And then he plays Ennio Marconi. I'm like, who are you? Like, there's talent, but then Zach's on a whole, Zach's yeah. on a whole other level. Like, and you can hear it in his music today. I don't know if you've heard Simply mm. Three's most recent, the, their hymns. 
it is incredible. It's so genius, like how they've done different songs and the creativity they've approached it with. Like he was just on, he was on a different level. Like he is an artist and president Frederick recognized that. And, and, and that was one talent with one missionary, but those talents were recognized in myriad ways and other missionaries and other talents. And I think that we've got to see a lot of that yeah. come out during that time. And that was just, that was part of my awe, right? Is just watching, watching these different talents express themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember being a new missionary and it says very plain as, as day in my patriarchal blessing that I would serve in leadership positions in my mission. And as a new missionary, I thought, I wonder what that looks like. But, you know, not like aspiring to any of those types of things, just going about doing what I was doing. Right. And then when the opportunity was right, I was put into those situations. And honestly, like the admiration that I have for you is is beyond words because truly you were sent there for the purposes that you were there. You were truly the midway point between the Vrains and the Fredericks and helping the Vrains see out the remainder of their mission and see the Fredericks into the upward curve that was their, their service to the, the Scotland Edinburgh mission. And so, and, and honestly, like your leadership skills walking in the door, everybody had respect for you. They were like, Oh my gosh, this guy's an air force guy. And like, the last thing I wanted to have was unpolished shoes in front of Jonathan the pole because he <laughs> he might show me how to properly, you know, shine my shoes or whatever. But I don't know. It you just you resonated that leadership quality and that's why you were there. And you you were put in that position early on in your mission because you transitioned the mission in almost a, a flawless way. And for that. I know that there are many, many, many missionaries that are listening to this and can attest that that is true. So, um, I, huge, huge, huge props and love to you for for what you did to help the mission keep on rolling in the direction that it was. I yeah, I certainly appreciate that a lot. There was certainly had a lot of heart in the game. <laughs> you just you'd feel it, you know the. The wins and the failures, you'd you'd feel it really, really hard. And and but you know it's interesting to you because the most important thing that I think we all came away from with that mission was just our opportunity to draw closer to Christ. Do you know how many people, and I say this sincerely, do you know how many people since I've been home 12 years or however long it's been that I've told that I was an AP on my mission? Zero. Go ask my wife if I was an AP. She wouldn't know. Like, because it just, at the end of the day, that was what the Lord asked us to do in our own, in our own sphere. But the offering that we made to the Lord, however meager it may have been, was the only thing that mattered within our own ability and, and what he asked us to do. And so I just, I certainly appreciate the time I was able to spend as a mission leader. Like that was a huge part of my mission. Um, but I, all the stories I tell now, or all the things I, I certainly reflect on the most, are just those, the spiritual experiences and the, and the way that that was able to to set me up to continue my spiritual growth. And so maybe, maybe I just end with this. 
if I can just share something with you really quick. Um, maybe we can just talk about Christ for a moment because it's it's coming up into the Christmas season, as it were. But one of the things about our Savior, <clears throat> I just want to be, uh, just want to try to share this the right way. But a little over a year ago, I was able to spend some time in the presence of the Lord. And the reason why I want to tell you that is so maybe I can tell you a little bit about him. He has a personality and an individuality that is as unique to him as your personality is to you. He is not a uh, amorphous blob of attributes that's just drifting through the universe. He has a personality. He has expressions. He has, I'll try to share this, but he has a sense of humor. In the time that we were together, he made me laugh out loud. And the remarkable thing about who he is, is that his intelligence is in every attribute that he has, including in his humor. When he made me laugh, it was a teaching moment. It was intelligence and it was joy. And I've never encountered humor like that in my life, ever before. He is so personable. And when he communicates, you know, when, when um, Moroni talks about speaking with him face-to-face, one of the things that he says is, you know, he spoke to me in plain humility as one man speaks to another. What he's saying there is that there's, um, there's, there's a very specific way that celestial beings communicate. Like we are, we are speaking, this is a celestial communi- communication, right? The, the principle of this is contained in the parable of the Garden of Eden. I'll try to be brief with this, but in the parable of the Garden of Eden, it talks about Adam and Eve being naked, right? And so we, are, we often read that and we think about nudity, right? But it's not nudity. It is, it is an exposure of everything that you are, your entire soul, is exposed your heart and everything in your heart your intentions your thoughts your motivations everything is exposed that's what it means to be naked before the lord is everything is exposed and on full display and when celestial beings communicate with each other this is how they communicate they um for lack of a better word expose or they they transmit this intelligence but in this packet of intelligence that is being communicated is all of the is the depth of feeling that is behind that communication. So let's say it is joyful news. As part of the joyful news that's being communicated, you get the actual joy and happiness and glory of that little packet of communication. And that's that's the exposure of that of that being. That's that's how it's communicated, right? Does this make hopefully this makes sense? Like we are talking back and forth right now in a telestial way. Like I am making sounds and, and the sounds are, are coming out and the, and my voice is very distinct, right? Just like yours is and everybody else listening to this and, and the shape of my vocal cords and the tension of my vocal cords, the shape of my mouth and my teeth and my tongue, like all of that creates the sound, but I'm, I'm sending these words to you and we have a shared language. So you're taking these words that are symbols and you're interpreting them. And there's all kinds of possibility for miscommunication there, right? As a re- 
as we communicate. So when when Adam and Eve were clothed, this ability to communicate was also clothed as well. And man became capable of lying and manipulating and deceiving and, and disguising communication. When you are in the presence of the Lord, you are exposed. You are fully, your heart is exposed, your mind, everything that is you and that composes you, your personality, your intelligence, all the little bits of your attributes, everything is exposed. And it's the same for him. And that is the most glorious part because he is light and joy and happiness. And just being in his presence is life-changing. He doesn't need to say anything. Just being in his presence is life-changing. But when he communicates, when he's, and he's a teacher, and when he communicates, it's left up to you to put it into words. And so when Moroni is talking about this, this is what he's actually saying is that the, the, when the Lord communicates, it's left to you to, to pick the words of, of what you received and what you heard. And so when the Lord was teaching, it was, it was this, it was overwhelming in a sense, but I would sit there for minutes sometimes just trying to internalize and digest and comprehend what had just been communicated in all of this light and all of this intelligence. And one of the remarkable things about him as well is that he treated me like a peer, like I was on the same level as him, which is a remarkable thing to say about the creator of heaven and earth. There is no, he's not pretentious. He's not arrogant. doesn't demand respect. Just who he is and what he has done captures the attention of the hosts of heaven. That when he walks in, everyone stands simultaneously and acknowledges him and worships him. He is so personable and so approachable. And one of the things that's very much changed in my life as a result of this experience is how I speak to him because he is a person. He is our father. And he, like we are, we are literally his offspring. Like if you, it's the wrong question to ask, but some might be tempted to ask, what does he look like? And the answer is that he looks like you and like me and like your father and your father's father and your father's father's father all the way back. Because when it says we're created in his image, it's literally true. We are his physical uh, offspring and, and he worships his, or, and then we have our, we have our heavenly father, right? The father of our, our spirits. And so I just want to, the reason why I want to communicate this is because the, He's, he is so approachable and so personable and so and it's so desirable to be close to him that I would want everyone to come close to him and feel like they can draw close to him and to approach him. And so that was just something that uh, I wanted to share and that I hope might be helpful uh, to some that hear it. But He's very much alive and he's very much uh, a real personality to encounter.
Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you That's, so much. The witnessing doesn't stop when the mission stops. No, it doesn't. No, and you think about, like, think about when when Nephi is having this experience in First Nephi 11, you know, he's, he's initially conversing with the Spirit, and then he's conversing with an angel, and then he's exposed to Christ and to the love of Christ. And he says, and this is the, the fruit, right? This is the representation of the fruit of the tree of life. What is the fruit of the tree? What is the fruit of God? Well, it's God's love. And he says, it is the most desirable above all things. And the angel responds, yay, and the most joyous to the soul. Just him and just his personality is so wonderful and so desirable that there isn't anything you would experience or give up or go through in order to just spend a minute at a side. It is, it's, like I said, it's left up to the receiver to try to choose words, and it's not easy, which is why so many in the scriptures use different language to try to express that, whether it's, you know, Isaiah and the way he expressed his, his witness um, of, of God or, or Nephi or Moroni. It's very, very difficult to, to try to properly express it in words. Um, but I just simply say that he's a, he's a very, very real person and he's so much, I think that was the most astonishing thing to me was just how his, how much of a, of, of, of just don't want to say it wrong, just, but just how much of a individual he is and how strong all of those attributes are as a result of what he has done for us and the sacrifices that he made for us in the atonement that he worked. He's a very real person and, and we should approach him as such. And as an imperfect person myself, full of frailty and weakness and sin, there is no, there's, I did not merit such an experience for myself. There was the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And, and there's a long, long story there that, that is about nine years uh, to tell. Um, but it is, at the end, it was uh, only the grace of God uh, that allows that into our lives. Wow. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I know that those that are listening will feel that love and that power that you just expressed that was probably one of the most amazing manifestations of the love of the savior that i've ever heard so thank you good well it's all about him no reason to approach me or anybody else there's only one he is the gatekeeper and he employs no servant there there's nobody you have to go through to get to him you can approach him directly and he is he is ready to receive you. And it's uh, I wish I could have it 
I wish I could have an experience like that every day. <laughs> but um, yeah. he is, uh, is the most amazing, the most remarkable being. Is is just there's no way for me to adequately express it or describe it. It's just. Um, <clears throat> Uh, he's just so full of love and intelligence and um he is also in control he is in charge and he is optimistic and he is joyful and so if you ever look around at the world and are concerned he is very much in control and it's uh it's remarkable at my level to only get a very small glimpse into that, but um, I will just testify that he's in charge and you can sleep easy knowing that. <clears throat> things, are, things are well in hand. Things are well in hand with him. So. <clears throat> That's great. Thanks, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. We yeah. love you, brother. Yeah, yeah. same Love you guys as well. Thanks for the opportunity to come on and, and chat a little bit. You well, one hundred percent. We have been well fed tonight, <laughs> so thank you again. We we know that you've stayed up late to to be with That's us fine. tonight, but thank no you problem. so much, and uh, we hope that you will continue to invite others to participate in this just as much. We we love the spiritual aspect as much as we love the joy and the fun and the memories and the camaraderie that we all share. So, oh, it's uh, so good. You guys keep up the great work. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Thank you. All right. Well, we love you again, brother. Yeah. Thank you. Love you guys. Good night. Good night. See you next Have time. a good night. See ya. Bye.